Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn now to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look this morning at Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9. Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9. Let's give our attention once again to the reading of God's holy an inspired and authoritative word. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Most gracious Father, as we look at this passage that is difficult for so many reasons, I ask that you would guide me by your spirit, that you would illumine all of our hearts and minds, that we might rightly understand your word, that we might rightly believe your word, that we might rightly apply your word. Indeed, Father, would you do this work by your spirit, even now I ask, in Christ's name, amen. Well, this is a a difficult passage for a, a host of reasons. Uh, First of all, it's a difficult passage because of the history of our own nation and because of the, 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 the failures of our country when it comes to slavery and when it comes to, to things that, that this passage kind of brings up. And, and reminds us of, and, and we struggle to figure out exactly how, how does this passage deal with some of those realities? Because just on the face of it, especially if you have an, an older version of the ESV that, that says slaves instead of bond servants, on the face of it, uh, this seems like it could be fairly problematic. And, and historically, indeed, if you go back to the, the mid-1800s, you can find uh, there was a, a raging debate in American Christianity about whether the Bible, in fact, condones slavery or not. And you could find titles of sermons that, that, that were uh, horribly racist just in the title and used the Bible to argue that, in fact... It does condone slavery, that this is an entirely justifiable and acceptable institution. And to the shame of Presbyterianism and and Presbyterians in the South, you can find a lot of Southern Presbyterian ministers preaching just this thing. And so from a historical standpoint, there's some things that, that make this difficult for us to work through. Second, It's difficult because this is one of those passages that doesn't seem to to kind of match to life in the 21st century just real clearly. Uh, None of us here have have bond servants. Most of us, really even probably, if we're honest, don't quite know what a bond servant even is. And so when we read this as part of the family table in Ephesians, we, we oftentimes are just left scratching our head. It doesn't map 
like we want a Bible verse to map to our lives. The third reason that this is a difficult passage, and we're going to dive directly into this this morning, is that there are some unpopular implications for how some conservative Christians have chosen to deal with social justice issues that are found in this passage. There are some things that are said that, that, that we have a tendency just to kind of look the other way and say, well, yeah, that's a good idea, but let's not really deal with some of the further implications there. Let's just move along quickly. Well, we're going to jump into all of that. And we're going to look at this passage and see that, that it actually does have some things for us to think about. We're going to follow the same pattern that we've followed in, in looking at wives and husbands and children and parents, now bond servants and masters. We're going to look at the manner and the subject and object of obedience, the manner of obedience, the motivation, all of those different things that we've looked at using the same categories. So first of all, the subject and object of obedience. And right at the beginning, it's bond servants, obey your earthly masters. We, we need to be quite careful here and make sure that we understand what is going on. The Greek word doulos is the noun uh, for bond servants, the noun that is used here. And, and it's a noun that can, can cover a whole range of semantic meaning. It can cover everything from, from a servant, someone that you would hire, perhaps uh, someone along the lines that we would think of, of maybe the person we hire to come cut our grass if, if you have the privilege of getting to do that. It can also uh, cover a, a, a all the way up to what we would traditionally think of as a slave. But it can also cover this idea that, that is an idea of, of, of what's called a bondservant, which is someone who, for some reason, perhaps an economic reason or a debt that was owed or, or something along those lines, contractually obligated themselves to another in order to, to deal with that debt or in order to, to serve according to a specific contract, typically for seven years, at which point they were released and were free. And so it can, it can cover all of those things. The, the, the way that it's used here within this family table is probably that last category that I spoke of. This category of, of bond servant, someone that was serving for a particular time, they were serving a particular person or a particular family, and when their contract was up, they would be released with their wages, and, and they would be free. No longer a doulos, no longer a bond servant. And in fact, in this time, they were able at times to, to amass a, an incredible amount of wealth. So when we look at the, the subject and object of obedience here, we need to hear all of this because when we read bond servant or in some translations slaves, we, in our minds, understandably so, automatically go back to and import 19th century American categories of slavery. And, and that's problematic because that's not what Paul has in mind as we deal with this passage. 
Now, I'm not going to say that in the Greco-Roman world there weren't examples of, uh, uh, of horrendous treatment of slaves and injustice and all of this kind of thing. It happened there as well. But it wasn't a system that was built the way the system was here. And so we need to keep that in mind lest we do a number of problematic things with this passage. In Exodus 21, 16, and in Deuteronomy 24, 7, for example, the Bible condemns the stealing of people in order to put them in slavery. So, so we can't argue from this, as some have in our history, we can't argue from this that, that what we saw in the United States of America was an acceptable situation. We simply can't make that argument. It's a false argument, though many tried to make it. And so what do we do with this? How does this apply to us? We've said that it's not quite what we think it is because of the historical categories we import. It probably has to do with this bondservant idea. We don't have those anymore. What do we do with this? Well, the way most commentators apply this passage, and this is a fair way to apply it, is to say that the closest thing that we have in our context to what is going on here and to what is being dealt with here is the boss-worker relationship. And there are certain things and certain principles that we find in this passage that speak to and inform the boss-worker relationship for us as well. And, and there is some truth to that. That, that, that is a, a helpful way of thinking about this. But as we'll see, there's going to be more that can be said. So the manner of obedience then we, we see in verse 5b is he speaks to these bond servants. How should they obey? They should obey with fear and trembling. And, and the idea here, as, as we're getting ready to see, isn't that they're to cower and, and be afraid. That, that's not what's going on here. The, the fear and trembling idea, that, that, as people so often point out in the Bible, often has to do with respect for the authority or, or, or fearing God, is, is respecting God, acknowledging who he is and, and responding appropriately. It's not cowering with fear and trembling, with respect, with a sincere heart. Sincerely wanting to, 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 to live and to obey and to serve those that are in your life, in an authority, in your life. And then Paul adds, as you would Christ. And so just as we saw with wives and husbands, just as we saw with children and, and fathers, so now here we see that the idea, the, the, the way that we are to understand this relationship primarily is driven by the gospel. It's not driven by our earthly station, but by the gospel. And, and Israel was taught to do this, and Christians are taught to do this all through the Bible. In the passage that Rob just read to us from Deuteronomy chapter 10, we, we see that, that they were to live a certain way, even towards sojourners, because they had been sojourners, but had been delivered. And, and that's a common theme in the Old Testament. You, you were servants in Egypt. But God delivered you, so live with mercy towards people. This is a common idea. Here, 
They're to serve as they would Christ. It is Christ that ultimately we serve in whatever position in life we find ourselves in. It is Christ ultimately that you serve in whatever position in life you find yourself in in regards to your vocation. And so one application that we can make here is wherever you find yourself, whoever it is that you find yourself serving, whatever authority it is that that, that God has put in place over you, obey them and serve them with fear and trembling, with sincerity of heart, as you would Christ, assuming that you would serve him that way. The the next thing we see in verses 6 through 8 is the motivation for obedience. And he begins with with two negatives, or with one negative that's then explained, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. So so what what Paul's making clear is like, look, what I'm asking you for here, when I say serve with fear and trembling, with sincerity of heart, as you would Christ, I'm not saying do this just by way of eye service so so that that the the, the master, so that your boss will will just kind of look at you and and be like, okay, good. But then when when they turn around, you're you're back to solitaire or, or, or whatever it may be. No. You're not doing this just for eye service. You're not doing this just that that they might be temporarily pleased with you and and, and stay off your back. You're, You're not doing this to please them. But as servants of Christ, doing the will of God. That's how we're to live. That's how we're to live in in relationships where we find ourselves to be the servant, to be the one under authority. The way we are to live is as if we're doing the will of God because we are. The way we're to serve is as if we're rendering service to Christ as his servants because we are. This is... This is how Paul is calling these bondservants to live in the situation that they find themselves in. And then he adds in verse 8, a somewhat difficult passage, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. I say this is a somewhat difficult passage because all of a sudden it sounds a little bit worksy, doesn't it? Do good and God will do good to you. He'll, He'll pay you back. If it's hard, don't worry. He's he's got you. It sounds a little bit too worksy for for a good Reformed Presbyterian. But here's here's what I think is happening. When you see passages like this, and you find them in a number of places, 2 Corinthians 5 is, is another difficult one that we find. You find them in a number of places where they say something like this. I think what we have here is is they're echoing the reality of, of Matthew 16, verses 25 through 27, where Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. And and that's the passage where he says, the one who seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But the one who gives up his life and follows me will find it. 
I think that's the idea because whenever you find these passages, most of the time it's in some kind of context where the, the natural inclination you would have in that context, like here, would be to start trying to preserve your life. If you were a servant who had a threatening master, as clearly as in view here, or in the, in the Peter house table, had a, if you were a servant who, whose master was beating you, your, your most natural inclination would be, I've, I've got to save my life. I've got to spare my life. I've got to become super focused on this life. If you, in your work situation, are in a situation where your boss is just an absolute Horses rear to deal with. What do you do? You immediately start trying to preserve your own life, don't you? Whether that's professionally or, or, or your own sanity or whatever it is. And so I think the reason Paul is saying this is because he's echoing Jesus' teaching from Matthew 16 and saying, look, the way forward is not preserving this life. That always leads to death. The way forward is to trust me, to serve me, to take your eyes off of this situation, off of this life, and fix them on Jesus Christ, who is your Savior. Now, we need to be careful with this, because that doesn't mean that injustice just gets a pass in this world. That's not what that means at all. Paul's going to speak to to those with the authority, those with the power, in just a minute. And so what we've seen here is that the way the servant is to process their entire life is as unto the Lord, is as serving Him, as serving Jesus. See, the thing we have to remember is that, that their station in life, our station in life, is not what determines or, or has any effect really at all on our hope, security, and identity. That is found entirely in Jesus Christ. And what Paul is calling us to here is to live in just such a way. Now, the manner of leading or mastering or whatever word you want to use here. Verse 9, masters do the same, but it doesn't stop there, to them. So the first thing that we've got to see here is that this again is an example where Paul is helping us understand what it looks like for Christians to live in mutual submission to one another. Again, he's unpacking what he said in verse 21 of chapter 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The bondservants were to serve their masters as, as if they were serving Christ. And now Paul says, masters, you do the very same thing to the bondservants. Serve them as if you were serving Jesus. Doing the will of God, rendering service to the Almighty, and how you treat them. 
Perhaps you find yourself in a position in life where, where there are people who are under you on, on the, the, the vocational ladder that, that you get to boss around. Do the same to them. The service you render to them, you render to them as unto Jesus. This is this mutual submission idea. Now, I understand that this doesn't necessarily get us real far up the ladder. That requires stepping on people and climbing over them and and using them for your advancement. But that simply isn't the concern of Scripture getting you further up the ladder. Frankly, Scripture could care less about that. But then notice the next statement. And stop your threatening. There's something interesting about how Paul chooses to word this. He doesn't, like he did with the bondservants, simply give a command for the the positive behavior. But he gives a command for the negative behavior to stop. See, Paul's assuming that threatening was happening. Paul's assuming that injustice was taking place in this relationship in which there was a power differential that was causing a problem. Paul's assuming the failure of the masters in a way that he doesn't with the bondservants. The call for the cessation of the negative action rather than the continuation of the positive action shows us that Paul is assuming there is threatening behavior that is happening. And here's the thing. This is all the more the case when we look at the other family tables and how the masters are spoken to. In fact, listen to how Peter deals with this issue in the family table in 1 Peter. He makes it even more explicit. When he writes in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Adekao. For what credit is, is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We have to ask a question here. Why did Paul have to tell these masters to whom he's writing, who we rightly understand to be Christians? He's not writing to pagans here. He's writing to those who are found by grace through faith in Christ. And yet he assumes this kind of failure in how they wield their power. Why? 
Why? Because one of the most natural things for a person with power to do is to take advantage of those without power. Now, I understand this is the point where I depart from a whole lot of my conservative friends in ministry and how I'm thinking and how I'm asking you to think about matters of social justice. We come to these conversations and we immediately cry Marxism and that ends the conversation. We, we immediately cry, oh, they're talking about oppressors and oppression and that ends the conversation and we don't have to actually think about what's going on here. The Bible calls us to do something different than that. The Bible calls us not to set aside our biblical anthropology in order to keep ourselves comfortable in how we think about difficult issues. One of the most natural things for a person with power to do is to take advantage of one without power. That's biblical. Utterly biblical. Why do I say that? Well, let's think for a moment about what's happened in this passage, in its context. Why did Paul have to say to wives, wives submit to your husbands? Because oftentimes they don't. Why did Paul have to say to husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church? Well, because oftentimes we don't. Why did Paul have to say to children, children, obey your parents? Because oftentimes they don't. Why did he have to say to fathers, the one with power, do not provoke your children to anger? Because oftentimes we do. Because we can. Why did he say to slaves, obey your earthly masters? Because oftentimes they don't. Why did he say to the masters, stop your threatening? Notice that it's in the two relationships where the greatest power differential exists that the negative behavior was condemned and called to cease. The father and the child and the master and the servant. If we broaden it out and think about might this be something, this idea that it's natural for those with power to flex their muscles, so to speak, and ask, does this happen? Well, yes, all over the Bible. What do you think Hagar's thoughts were when Abraham and Sarai hatched this plan? Hey, you just go sleep with her and have a kid. What do you think Sarah's plan was or Rebecca's thoughts were when, when they recognized, when their, their husbands recognized, we're about to go into a situation where the balance of power is all jacked up and you're beautiful and this king is liable to take you from me and kill me. So, what did, so let's do this. You just say you're my sister. 
What about Jacob and Esau? Oh, you're hungry? I'll trade you your entire inheritance for a freaking bowl of soup. What about David and Bathsheba and Uriah? What about Jezebel and Ahab and Naboth and his vineyard? What about the tax collectors and the people that they oftentimes robbed blind because they had the power to do so? What about Potiphar's wife and Joseph? What about Joseph and his brothers? And, and here's why this story stands out so amazingly to us. Because first, what happens is there's this power play by the brothers over the younger brother, and they sell him into slavery and ship him off. Sayonara, we want nothing to do with you. But then when the tables have turned, and Joseph could positively crush them, he shows mercy. And says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The reason that story is so astounding to us is because the most natural thing for someone with power to do is to flex their muscle against the one who doesn't have power, especially in a situation like that where the tables have turned. We would have made the brothers Weep. What about the Jewish leaders and Jesus? See, when I hear people from our corner of the world decrying social justice because this idea of oppressor and oppression and all of that is unbiblical. I wonder what Bible they're reading. Because when Solomon looked down at the world in Ecclesiastes 4.1, this was the description that he gave. Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had none to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. We don't get to ditch our anthropology that the Bible gives us when its implications make us uncomfortable. Paul had to call for the cessation of this negative activity, this negative, oppressive, abusive, taking advantage of kind of behavior. He had to call for that to cease from Christians because it happens. And it does us no good whatsoever to pretend like it doesn't. It does us no good to pretend like this doesn't take place in this world. 
and to hide behind our theology and say, oh, well, the gospel is the answer to everything. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And one of the ways that the gospel answers this particular issue is by calling us to live faithfully in light of the gospel in this life. Not simply ask people to put off their suffering until the next. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Both bondservants and masters in this passage find their hope, security, and identity to be bound up entirely in Jesus Christ. See, the reality is, is that even if we find ourselves in position of authority, when we're behaving this way, when we're acting this way, when we're doing what is natural to us, we're still not taking up the cross and following Christ, but seeking to preserve our life in this world. And Jesus said, we'll lose it when we do that. We'll lose it. What Paul calls everyone in view in this passage, which is everyone, what he calls us to see is that our hope, security, and identity is bound up in Jesus Christ. This is what gives us the freedom to stop seeking to save our own lives and take up the cross and follow him. I don't have to secure my life. I don't have to maintain my status. I don't have to stay at the top. Because I'm found in Christ. And because everything about who I am and what I have is not in any way attached to my performance in this world, but entirely attached to His, I have the freedom. I have the freedom to admit my tendencies. as one who in so many categories in my life have power, I have the freedom because of who I am in Christ to admit that, repent of it where I need to, and rest in Jesus Christ and so serve those that I could take advantage of. See, the gospel is ultimately the answer to all the social justice issues of the world. But not just in the eschaton. Because as soon as the gospel declares about you and me that we are freed from our bondage to sin, 
that we've been new, made new creations, that we've been filled with the Spirit, as soon as that happens, I have the freedom to stop fearing whatever silly thing it is that I'm scared of losing and give it away to do the same to them. Because Jesus gave it all away to do the same to me. So yes, the gospel is the answer. But the application of that answer does not wait to the eschaton. We begin as Christians living with that answer now. That's what Paul's calling us to. To do otherwise is to go before the parole board and say, you know what? I've gotten used to it here. I appreciate the offer of sunshine and freedom, but I'm going to stay. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Only do not use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you for your word and how it calls us to the end of ourselves. We admit that we've often used your word to justify our comfort. And we repent of that. Help us, Father, to find our hope and security and identity entirely in Jesus Christ. That we might work against our nature. This fleshy nature that still rears its horrendously ugly head. That with the help of your spirit, we might slaughter it putting it to death, that we might live lives that honor you. That we might serve as doing your will from the heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.